0: Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create
1: space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ.
0: I'm going to read our text this morning before we begin. Uh, We're beginning a new series called Curators as we walk through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to read Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31 this morning. It says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Uh, This morning we have uh, a dear friend, uh, Ryan Guerra, who's going to be bringing the word for us. Uh, He's someone that loves our church community, and we love him a lot back. So we'll invite him to the stage, if you can give him a hand as he joins us.
1: Do we have any Mr. Beast fans in the house? Hey, Mr. Beast fans. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Mr. Beast is, I think, probably the most famous YouTube channel in the world. Um, So maybe you're just not spending enough time on YouTube. That's the takeaway today is to spend more time on YouTube. Anyways, Mr. Beast, he's this guy that gives away like cars and houses and does all, like I want to be on his channel on the receiving end of that. But one of the things he does, and a bunch of other YouTubers do this as well, is they do this thing where they're like, they give you two options, either something concrete, like a, a certain amount of money or a certain item, or like a mystery box. So it might be like $1 or the mystery box or $100 or the mystery box. This one guy, he goes into stores and when he goes to buy something, he's like, I can either pay for it or give you the mystery box. Sometimes it's like big, like here's $1,000, $2,000. like. Or, or imagine someone going up to Jason and being like, hey, we'll give you like a permanent church facility so you don't have to set up ch- chairs every weekend, or else the mystery box. I got to tell you something about me. I am a hardcore mystery box person. The is that, is that me making some like... Okay, yeah, sorry. I'm just going through some voice changes up here. But um, the... I, I, like, I am so dedicated to it that that would be like. I, I can't imagine what Mr. Beast would have to offer me for me to not go for the mystery box every time. Like, if I saw him coming down the street, even before I knew if I was going to be on his channel, I'd just be yelling mystery box. You know, I love the mystery box because it could be anything. It could be. And I would rather, if it was like this thing, the concrete thing in the mystery box, and it was the same thing, I'd still rather get it out of the mystery box because it's way more exciting. Jason has very generously invited me to come and uh, just share a little bit this morning from Genesis 1. And what he particularly wanted me to dig into is what I believe and maybe some others that I've studied believe Genesis 1 teaches us about the intention of God's creation, God's purpose behind creation. The picture I get from Genesis 1 is that God did not go for the mystery box on this one. He didn't like open up this cosmic thing and it was like, whoa, that's what popped out. But there's this creator who not only created things magnificently, but with a great deal of intention, with a great deal of purpose, specifically in certain ways for a certain reason and to fulfill a certain purpose and intention for all time. And that's what I really want to dig into with you guys in Genesis 1 this morning as we're hopping into that. And I just want to quickly say it's such an honor to be with you guys. Last time I came to spoke, uh, came to spoke, last time I came to speak, that's a funny word to mess up, but last time I came to speak, uh, we got snowed out. So we went like COVID televangelist style from Jason's living room. So we thought June 11th, probably a good chance, no snowstorm. Jason and I are both from Calgary. So back there, Who knows? But here, good chance we want to get snowed out. So I'm really stoked to be here. I love City Collective Church. I love Jason and Adriana so much. You guys have such a gift and your leaders here. What a great community to be a part of. And I'm particularly pumped to be here because it's lunch after Sunday. I came on the right Sunday. So anyways, I saw the schedule for City Collective and I saw that it was good and I decided (laughs) this is the one. Here's what I'd like to do. i I like to give a little bit of a framework for where I'm going to maybe make it a little bit easier to follow. Um, I want to go to some words of Jesus to kind of give a bit of an idea of what I'd like to dig into with Genesis 1. So there's this point in the Gospel of Matthew where uh, someone comes up to Jesus and he asks him this question. He says, what's the most important part of the law? Like, what's the most important commandment? And a lot of you have been around church for a while. You know this. In Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus replies. He says, the most important command, it's really easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I don't know if I got that in the right order. But those three things, your heart, your soul, and your mind. Love God with all of that if you 're anything like me, there are probably certain aspects of that that you 're more inclined to love God and other ones that you 're maybe actively less engaged with What I would like to do if while we look at Genesis one this morning and you know I could talk for twenty hours about genesis one it 's such a rich text, but Jason asked me to limit it to two and a half hours so i 'm going to try to keep it there just kidding. if I go over on lunch Sunday, that is like you know, really bad form but We've talked for a long time, but what I'd really love to do is I, I would love for us to dig into maybe how this speaks to our mind, to our heart, and to our souls. And what I mean by that is our mind, think about like what we think about, our hearts, what we feel, and our soul, maybe the culmination of that, and as a result, what we are inclined to do. Our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, our feelings, and as a result, what we do. And I'd love to kind of engage that in three different areas. Um, And there might be some crossover, but first I'd love to start by speaking to our minds. Genesis 1.1, if you grew up going to Bible camp, you memorized this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word heavens there doesn't mean like some floaty cloud castle with like full of angels. It means the cosmos, the universe, everything. This is a statement that says God created all of it. God created everything. Now for a long time, for me growing up in the church, uh, Genesis 1 was really more just kind of like the battleground of debate over like how creation happened and when it happened and how old the earth is. And I, I I just don't feel like that's the best approach to this text. I think whenever God inspires biblical authors to write, they're answering some kind of big question. It helps us engage in how we follow Jesus and how we work out theology in our life. And I find it really hard to imagine that the very first pages of this book that's been preserved for a long time of God speaking to us is a textbook on biology. I mean, high school Ryan definitely hopes that I'm not growing up in a textbook of biology. I think it's more an observation of deep and rich theology. Now welcome here if you believe the earth is really old, you believe it's young, however you believe. God created in what time frame. Welcome here. You can love Jesus. And that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. What I want to dig into is what I believe is the deeply, richly poetic nature of Genesis 1. And if you've read Genesis 1, you might be looking ahead and you're like, I don't see like a rhyming scheme in there, Ryan. It's not like A, B, B, A, B, or however rhyming schemes work. I didn't do very well in English in high school. But You know, most of us, when we think about poetry in English, we think about you know straight rhymes. If you're a young parent, you maybe are in the same area that I'm in, where you're trying to read Dr. Seuss books. You sit down with like Fox and Socks, and you start out page one or two really strong. You're like, I'm gonna. I'm going to crush this thing. I'm going to read it so fast. And by page seven, you're like, I cannot keep up with this book. These are great rhymes going on and on. Hebrew poetry doesn't work like that. Hebrew poetry is rich, not with, sometimes with a bit of a rhyming structure, but rich with parallel structures built in there to, to imagine a bigger picture, to incite memory, and beautiful refrains that ring through so we're going to go a little bit Bible nerdy here. Um, maybe not my usual style, but I want to engage your minds because I believe that there's a great truth and a great picture behind how God created and why He created and the intention for God creating the universe. So what we see is we see he's, it, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see these, if you know it, these six days that are explained of creation. And what we see throughout those six days are these three refrains. And if you've read this before, maybe you've caught this before, but this repeated language that is baked into Genesis 1 throughout. The first refrain goes like this. And God said, let there, or let the, at the start of every day. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the land, let the water, let the sky, let there, let there. And God said, let. This is this refrain that starts every day of creation. It's this powerful reminder that God is speaking creation into existence. And each day ends with this cool refrain that says, and there was morning and there was evening, the blank day. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. There was evening and morning, the second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And my favorite refrain, and we sang a song just like this, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. We see this showing up seven times throughout this account. Interestingly, if you go through and you're like me and you're like, I'm going to check and you're going to read, you'll see that on day two, God doesn't say it was good. We all have Mondays, right? So we'll give him a pass on that. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. Good. This Hebrew word you've maybe it's been popularized by um, Bible Project, Scott McKnight's book, a church called Tove. This Hebrew word Tove. You don't need to remember that it means it's good. At the very end, and Jason read this. God saw that it was very good, mehod tov in Hebrew. God saw that it was very good. This refrain singing throughout the whole nature of Genesis one, God said, let there be, and things started to happen. And there was evening and there was morning, and throughout, it was good, it was good, it was good. These refrains that bring back, bring up this picture of like, what is God actually up to? Now, what I think is the most interesting part of the poetic nature of Genesis one. And hopefully if you're like, not into this kind of Bible nerding out part, don't worry, we're gonna get to the heart and soul part afterwards, but bear with me a little bit longer. But something that happens that's really cool is something that harkens back to verse two. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in verse two, now the earth was formless and empty. Hold on to those two words, formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That darkness over the deep, many scholars and commentators would speculate that it's kind of this language of chaos, this emptiness, this swirling mass of kind of nothingness and dark waters kind of flying all over the place, kind of like a constant hurricane with the lights off, kind of a crazy picture. And and the Bible says it was formless and it was void. Now here's something fun that happens in the Hebrew language. And I promise these are last Hebrew words in case you're like, I'm not trying to remember all of these. But these are fun ones if you're going to ever remember them. Formless and void is tohu vavohu. It rhymes. So you could remember that. Tohu vavohu. Whoops. I'm not very good at this. Empty and formless. So right at the start we have this picture. It's empty and it's formless. And we could just read the six days and see, yeah, I can see how it becomes not empty and formless. But here's a really interesting thing about how this is written. Under this category of Tohu, formless, we see day one. God said, let there be light. I think a lot of us know that. God said, let there be light. All of a sudden we see a little bit of form. Things were formless. We see a little bit of form. There's some light. It's a little bit less, a little bit less chaotic. Day two. Well, what do we need? Well, God steps in and he separates the waters. That is to say that he makes the sky and he makes the sea. There's a little bit more form to this universe. In day three, God continues to speak and God said, and all of a sudden, and I think you guys all know what we need now because we're not living in water world, right? Ground. Ground emerges. Vegetation, plants, trees. We live in BC. We love those things. Mountains, right? All of a sudden, there's this earth forming. And we have this formed universe. things are no longer formless, but it's still empty. And note the really beautiful parallel here. So on day one, God said, let there be light. On a second set of three, day four, well, what do we fill that formlessness with? God makes sun, moon, and stars. The light is fulfilled with the sun, moon, and stars. Day two, well, there was water and sky, so, but those are still empty. Those are, those need to be filled and they get filled with birds and fish at the command of God's voice. And then in day six, as we see earth emerge, you guys know, animals, people, mosquitoes too, I know. I've got big questions one day when I see God and I'm like, hey, I've got lots of theological questions, God, but like mosquitoes and appendixes, I just don't understand. I promise a very intentional creation sure there's a great reason, or maybe he just like, men in black pens us when we get to heaven and we forget about mosquitoes or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how it works. It's this beautiful poem. So, who cares, Ryan? Cool. There's like this nerdy way of looking at Genesis 1 that brings this poetic framework in. Well, I think when we understand how the author has penned this, how God has inspired them to pen this and draw these parallels out, what it draws our mind to is what God is actually up to and what his character is actually about. And if we imagine a God who looks at an empty void, a wild wasteland, this swirling dark hurricane that is formless and empty, and is the God that starts to speak form into the formlessness and fulfillment into the emptiness, we start to understand that there's this God who is the God who speaks into the formless and the empty nature of his creation, the Tohu Vavohu, and he brings life. And he brings a beautiful picture of creation and all of it's so fine-tuned to work together. I mean, earth's the right temperature, you guys know all this, all the things that work together, all the amazing things, the fact that your fingers are different lengths, but when you bend them in, they're like the same length. Like, how does that happen? You know, someone thought of that. That's an amazing invention. It's incredible. I'd love to move into Genesis 1.26. We're not gonna read the whole thing, but I hope our minds are drawn to this picture of this God through the poetic nature that, that we start to imagine has this huge heart for his creation and brings form and brings fulfillment where there's formlessness and emptiness. And at the very end of it, at, at, at the culmination of all of this, in Genesis 1, we see God kind of lay the centerpiece. Jason read this earlier. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I'd love to, for us to like maybe lean into the heart part of this now. We can love the Lord, our God, with our minds because we can maybe imagine him as this incredible creator. But what does this do for our hearts? At the very end of this, God does this really special thing. He talks about this differently than any other part of creation. He says, let there, let there, let there. But then all of a sudden, he says, let's do this in this really incredible, special way. Many theologians will speculate that in the ancient world, uh, people who worship pagan deities, false gods, what they would do is they would get like all their best materials together, all their precious metals, all their fine stones, all the best things, all their traits together, and they would build the most glorious temple they could to their god that they worshipped, their god that they had imagined and dreamed up. And they would build the most beautiful temple they could because they wanted to give everything they could to this god that they worshiped. And when they finished constructing their temple, what they would need to do they they would need to build the centerpiece of this creation, of this temple, sorry, and they would come in and they would build some kind of wooden or bronze or gold statue, an idol of their god. And I would say that's because their god isn't real, so they need to make an image, a reflection of this god, so that they can go and look at something and observe something and see that. There's this sense in which I think the creation story is God kind of saying, hold my beer, You know, that's cute what you guys are, I'm not speculating that God drank beer, okay, just in case there are any like teetotalers that are mad at me right now, but anyways, um, he's saying, that's cute, cool temple you guys built, check this out. And he starts speaking this incredible garden into existence. He builds this incredible universe. One of the reasons I think the universe is still expanding is because it's just, it cannot contain the glory and grandeur of God who spoke it into existence. The universe continues to expand because God's greatness, his glory is ever increasing. It's infinite. It's impossible. He builds this beautiful temple. And what does he do at the end? He mimics men, but he shows how it's actually done. And he puts in the middle of his temple this reflection this image of who he is i won't use the word idol cuz that's not a good word but he puts this image of him right in the middle of the temple and that's that's us and this isn't going to turn into some like feel good message that's like oh you're the best you're creating god's image but we should understand that at the at the very like it, you know this is like the headlining act of the concert of creation God rolls up his sleeves and he's like, check out my best work yet. Let me show you who I truly am by creating something in my own image. Are there areas of your life that feel formless? Are there areas of your life that sometimes feel empty? Maybe some areas of your life that sometimes feel chaotic or void, like a wild wasteland, like a swirling dark hurricane. I know for me there often are. Things don't, don't go the way I expect. I battle with my own insecurities. See, it's interesting when we battle with insecurities, which I do, and I would imagine many of us battle with our own degree of that and doubts of ourselves and of others. We're not questioning ourselves. What we're questioning is the great artist who made that masterpiece. Ephesians 2 describes us that way. He says, you're God's handiwork, his masterpiece, his incredible creation. He created you to do good works or self-doubt, or doubt for others, when we look down on others, when we look down on ourselves, is really just a statement of our observation of God's great creation. I come back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and I think God would say, trust me, that formlessness in your life, that emptiness, that void, that chaos, I wanna speak into that doesn't need to be a swirling storm. Now, I'm not suggesting that like if you follow Jesus, all of a sudden your life's wonderful and it's perfect and it's just hashtag blessed forever. But there is a God who created you in his image that sees those formless, those empty moments. Like Jason said earlier, prayed for us, those burden things. And he wants to speak into those. And here's something really interesting. Maybe you caught it. In 26, God said, "Let." us make mankind in our image not me in my image it's like this plural thing you might have caught it as well in genesis 1 now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters that really messes with our theology when we like celebrate pentecost sunday and it's really like neat and tidy to be like oh this is when the spirit came and it's like well wait the first like two sentences of the bible you know and we read some stories where the spirit shows up and I'll say this, more and more, I don't understand how a lot of that works, this idea of this, tri- this triune God. But what I do know is that right the any God, and millennials will love this, is a God who likes to collaborate. I mean, that's a millennial buzzword, right? It's a collaborative God. He does things out of re- relationship. And he creates us in his image, in the image of being a relational God. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to, out of relationship, speak into that formless and void part of your life. Genesis one twenty seven continues, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So hopefully we've engaged our minds a little bit, imagining what this poem could tell us about this great God, and trying to wrap our minds around his intention, creating form and fulfillment in a formless and empty universe. Perhaps our hearts have been pulled in a little bit by a God who loves us and created us in his image. But it would be a shame to walk away just kind of thinking some good things and feeling some good things and not feeling inclined to like maybe do something about that. Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his image. If you've been around the church for all, you've probably heard someone say that. And a lot of times it is just a statement of affirmation. And I hope by the part we were talking about before, we do feel kind of affirmed as children of God that He loves. Not because of anything we've done, but because God loves us deeply enough to make us in His image and to die on the cross for us and all the great things He's done for us. But more than kind of an observation or maybe more than a comment, what I think Genesis 127, this statement about being created in God's image, is less of a comment and more of a commission. Less of a comment, to more of a commission. It's not like at the end of this creation narrative, God just needs to be like, hey, just so you guys know, you're really, really great. God is always in the business of inciting us to live out his intention and his purpose for our lives. If you've been around City Collective, you know that you've been working through a series in Matthew. I don't know how long it will take, maybe like 17 more years, but eventually you're going to get to Matthew 28. It's the end. I'm not trying to steal Jason's thunder for when he gets there, but at the end, what's Jesus' last thing he says? He says, go, make disciples, go on mission. This idea of being made in God's image, I think, is less of God just like observing, oh, I did this thing, but God commanding us and saying, now you go and show people who I am. It's an invitation to bear and reflect his image to the world around us. This is the story all throughout Scripture. God says, I've made you in my image. Now go and live out my commandments. Go live out my teachings. Go live out my love so that the nations around you will know who I am. In the Old Testament, we have this nation of Israel. It's not only Israelites there, largely, but anybody's welcome as long as they see God's image and they're drawn in. It's the same as the church today. It's not just like enough for us to have a social club and hang out here, but for us to be people who truly are conduits of God's reflection to the world around us so that God, so that people can see who God is. I don't know why, but that's why, how God decides to do it. It would be way better if he showed up and spoke here on a Sunday morning. I mean, especially when Jason's preaching, it'd be way better than that. I mean, not as much, but, um, just kidding, Jason's great. But it's like, it'd be awesome if Jesus just showed up and he did the thing, but he lets us do it. It's a lot of trust. It's a lot of trust. It's actually, I felt a lot of trust being asked to open up a series, but I've kind of, maybe it's strategic because Jason has the next couple of weeks to fix everything I've kind of broken this morning, but we'll see. <laughs> but God decides to do it through us. Here's what's interesting about bearing the image or reflecting someone. Um, you might have noticed the first thing God created was light. And I don't want to make too much of that theologically because I might be on thin ice, but there's this theme throughout the Bible of light. In John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And in Matthew 8, or Matthew 5, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. His kingdom is described as a kingdom of light. We're called children of light. God is called the the God of light. Over and over and over, there's this theme. Read John. Just go on BibleGateway.com and type in light. You'll see it show up all the time. God is described as this one, this person of light. And at the end of the creation narrative that starts with God creating light, this brilliant light, We're called to bear his image to reflect him. Maybe you know this because you're a scientist or you remember grade school. But when you see, your eyes don't actually like go out and like see a thing. Like they're not reaching out and grabbing that chair and seeing it. What it is is that light reflects off of it and goes into your eyeballs and does something biological. I don't know what it is. And then you see it. What an incredible picture I think of when I think about Matthew 5 when Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Go and let your light shine before people so that they might see how awesome you are. No, if you know it. So they might see your, your Father in heaven and glorify Him. I think the idea I get for the intention of God's creation when I come to this commissioning part is that hopefully when people see me, they start to see less and less of me. That I'm disappearing and what they're truly seeing is that radiance of God's light reflecting off of me. Now, that might sound compelling, and probably lots of us would be like, yeah, I want to go reflect God's image, and then we leave him, we're like, but how? So I want to just highlight two ideas, and there's a lot that could be said, but Jason asked me to speak on Genesis 1, so I want to be true to this text. Two ideas that conjure out of my mind when I read Genesis 1 that would really inform the way, particularly in this modern era of the church, that we could be those people who take up this commission, this mission that God gives us in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, to go and bear his image to the world. I'm going to take us back to those three refrains. The first refrain, what was it? And God said, let there be or let them. For years reading Genesis, I missed this. But one of the biggest things, again, we argue so much, like people argue about how old the earth is, and that's an interesting debate. I'm not saying you can't argue about that. But I think sometimes we miss some of the beautiful things that are really here. One of the most powerful things, I think, that Genesis 1 teaches us is really simple, and it's this, that God speaks. He speaks, he talks a lot. In fact, that's kind of all that happens in Genesis 1 is he talks, and crazy stuff happens when he talks. When God opens his mouth and speaks, amazing stuff happens. More than when any of us speak. I've been talking for like 25, 30 minutes and nothing's been created. Maybe some people are falling asleep. I don't know. God starts talking and amazing stuff happens. God is a God who speaks. Those ancient gods that people built temples to, they didn't believe their gods spoke. When they showed up to a wooden statue that could splinter and break. When they showed up to a brown statue that would varnish and waste away, they didn't expect it to talk. Right from the start, this relational God begins a conversation. Now, I think that that's one of the most powerful components of being an image bearer of God, but I also think it's one of the most most missing components in our modern movement of the church. So some of you might not know this, but hundreds of years ago, if you were part of a church, I don't think any of you were, but if you were part of a church hundreds of years ago, when you went, um, the people in charge, I don't know what they called them, church rulers, I think maybe we'll jump back to that, Jason, start going by church rulers, I think it's a good vibe, just kidding. They would, they would have this book, there would be like one in their community and it would be chained to the, I don't think they had like a millennial networking cocktail table like this, but like some kind of lectern or pulpit or whatever, it would be chained to it. And it was a thing of power and control so that you would have to come to the place, to the building, to hear me or Jason or whatever ruler, or leader, or person read to you and tell you about it. You had to be taught by us. There were some people who didn't think that was great. So they fought hard. They were persecuted, beaten, ostracized, insulted. They lost everything. People were killed so that we could have this thing. which just could be given to us. And now we have it everywhere. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but they've taken the Bible app and turned it into like a print version now as well. So it's available everywhere. We can have it. But I think that what we've done in our modern movement of the church, maybe we're too busy. We don't care. Maybe we're reacting against a generation of the church before us that we didn't like that much, that read the Bible a lot, and maybe we didn't like how they acted that much. And we ourselves have voluntarily taken this back to the pulpit and chained it back and just been like, I just want to show up once every couple of weeks and hear the spiritual leftovers of the person on stage. Most, most people in the modern church have not read through this book or hardly ever read this book. And I would argue, and I mean, this is a whole other conversation, that this is the primary way that God speaks to us. No wonder so many of us have those areas of our lives that feel formless and empty. There's this God who wants to speak into it. And shape that and bring life to speak light into our lives and there's just I don't know too much on Netflix it's too boring I get it I've read Leviticus and Jeremiah I get it it's tough sometimes but there's this God who loves you who made you in his image and who wants to continue to speak that life into your life this is not this is not a challenge of condemnation if you're struggling with this but this is an invitation to and I would suggest that one of the greatest and most powerful and primary ways that we could be an image bearer of God is to have his voice regularly speaking into our lives. Otherwise, we journey out into the formlessness. We, we journey into the emptiness on our own, trying to make it up on our own. Here's the great gift. God says, I know how it all works. I'd love to speak into your life. So if you want to be an image bearer, I think we go back to that refrain, God said, God said, God said, and allow him to speak into our lives. That might take some sacrifices that might take some shifts there's so many voices there's so much noise in our world right there's always something we're hearing always something we're being told giving up a bit of that real estate to that voice of god incredible things will happen in your life here's the second thing and this is the last thing the other refrain where god saw that it was good god saw that it was good i think this would be a big challenge for our modern era of church God is clearly a very good God. You don't have a bad God who makes a really good creation. God saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. It was good. It was good. And at the end, it was after He creates people, it was mehod tov. It was very good. And we just sang a song like that, you are good, you are good. And again, maybe it's a reaction to an era of church before my generation where we feel it was too legalistic and too stringent and too rules-driven, but I think we're very unconcerned with this idea of living good lives for Jesus, which is interesting because we want to bear and reflect the image of a good God but kind of just live the way the rest of the world lives. Like people would look at us as image bearers of God and be like, your lives are stacked up and set up and organized and categorized almost all the same ways as me, except maybe I sleep in a little bit more on Sunday mornings. And that's not a very compelling invitation into the kingdom of light. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, and we don't like this these days, good deeds. God is a holy God, a righteous God, a morally perfect God. Those are types of words that we don't like as much in this era of church because we've swung from the pendulum of what we call legalism to something where we use statements more like be in the world but not of the world, which is often just an excuse for us to live however we want while saying a little bit about Jesus once in a while when we're around our Christian friends. If we wanna be true image bearers of God, there is this refinement process that I believe God invites us into. And he says, my creation was called to be good. And that means unchoosing alternatives that the world has to offer us, not living our lives in the same desire driven way that everybody else is living their lives in and being compelled towards something that is so much better so that our lives can truly reflect the holy and righteous and good God who created the Bible. And I'm not gonna be up here and tell you like you can do this and you can't do that. But what I will say is that. That until we start listening to the voice of God and until we start choosing to surrender things that we would just be driven to in our own formless and empty proclivities and choosing what God wants to fill us with, it's going to be pretty hard for us to be an era of the church that bears God's image. I've just talked for a long time, perhaps too long. The timer hit zero. I don't know how long ago, so I apologize. I know it's lunch Sunday. Because I've talked for a while, I want to take... Sincerely, one minute to recap. Jason invited me to talk about Genesis 1, the intention for God's creation. And this is what I would suggest. I would suggest that Genesis 1 says that there is a good, holy, righteous, perfect God, who out of his relational being looked out at a formless and empty world full of chaos and spoke form and fulfillment into it. And at the crowning moment of his creation, he creates the most beautiful, part of his creation, that will have the greatest responsibility and the greatest mission to be curators, ones who steward and manage his creation well and take his light and reflect it to the world around us, which will be fueled by his voice and his goodness. And the invitation is open to any of us. I'd love to pray for you guys. God, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you speak to us. And perhaps, perhaps this morning, For all of us, there are some areas of our lives, those areas of formlessness or emptiness or areas that we struggle to surrender that you would like to speak to. Please invite us to slow down enough to listen to your voice, to hear that and to be drawn into the goodness and into the light, into the form, into the fulfillment that you would invite us into. You're so good and we love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.